Hey, it's Ross Payne with Roleplaying Public Radio. Uh, this is RPPR episode 179, Blades in the Dark, for Heists 1 or 2. Uh, <laughs> uh, following on with our previous episode about heists uh, on in sort of a generic level. Uh, last, since that episode, I've been running a Blades in the Dark campaign with some of the RPPR cast, including Aaron and Bill, who are here. Um, and also, uh, we have another special guest, Jeff Barber, uh, who's run his own Blades in the Dark campaign that I played a, in one game of. Uh, and so we still have heist on the mind, but I want to explore the system and the setting of Blades in the Dark specifically because uh, it's a very fun game. Um, and I have a, it's 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 uh, yeah, but it's not perfect. Uh, so we'll sort of go into its its strong points and sort of its weak points. But um, before we get into that, uh, I do have a bit of news. Um, again, I want to apologize for all our PPR patrons why I was late with this month's uh, after hours episode. Uh, but it is up. It was a very good episode. Uh, and I will have August After Hours episode up pretty early. I already have it planned, and we should be recording it soon. Um, but again, I had some real-life stuff uh, to take care of, and I was a bit distracted. But um, I'm back on schedule for it, and we should be on a normal cycle for everything. And also, we are still streaming weird movies and videos uh, and stuff on the RPPR Discord every week. If you want, I'm not going to announce it every single time. Uh, when we're doing it, but I will put the announcement on the as a pinned message on main. So if you go to the main channel on the RPPR Patreon Discord and look under pinned messages, uh, it'll have the when and where. Or you can just ask. Just just at me. Feel free to at me, uh, and I will be happy to tell you uh, when our next thing is. Uh, like I said, I've done my movie, Motorhome from Hell. I've done my parents' movie, Copperhead. Uh, those will probably come up again sooner or later, but we're watching some real interesting stuff and uh having a good time doing that and that, that is just going to be weekly because there's turns out there's a lot of weird stuff to watch uh and uh yeah we're all having a good time doing it so uh if I hope you want to be a connoisseur of grandpa teeth water become <laughs> grandpa us. teeth water yeah what, what what do you mean by that you'll have to you'll have to watch <laughs> to find out uh thank you Aaron, for these little edits um so th- those are fun uh and what else also night clerk radio um we just posted our episode not too long ago on hauntology. It was very good. And if you listen to us at the very beginning uh, and you didn't quite like it because of the editing style, it was a bit too, some people sort of mentioned it was a little too ed- abrupt and um, a little too fast paced. We've uh, refined our editing style. Actually, well, Burke has because Burke has been editing it. Thank you, Burke, my co-host for Nightclub Radio. Um, so The algorithm has been fired. Yeah, the algorithm has been fired. Uh, so we have refined it. It's a little more chill now, so uh, give it a listen now. I mean, every podcast, there's a bit of a learning curve. It was just sort of figure out what we want to do on it and what we don't want to do. And uh, even though I've been podcasting for a hot minute now, uh, there was still that kind of learning curve with uh, Night Clerk Radio. But we're going to have a guest uh, soon. We already had Caleb as a guest. Uh, we're going to do another episode uh, with a guest, and uh, we have some other stuff to announce soon, like uh, a Patreon for Nightclerk Radio with unique rewards just for that. Uh, so if you want to find more weird music to listen to, um, if you want to hear us talk about music theory and whatnot, uh, Nightclerk Radio, it's all, every other week with a... Uh, each episode's under an hour. It's not that much for listen. Um, so, uh, but if you haven't listened, there's already a good backlog for you to, to catch up on, uh, to binge on. But um so that's it for news uh let's get into the episode uh itself uh blades in the dark um the hottest game of what 2017 we're finally covering an rppr 
so it is a derivative of powered by the apocalypse yeah, yeah 2017 is the copyright date um uh it is derived from powered by the apocalypse but it is its own sort of system um now we've done a variant of this system scum and villainy that's already up on our our play but um i kind of want to go to every guest and kind of talk just just kind of what what when i say blades in the dark what do you think of so um jeff when you first played it when you first ran it, what were what what wh- when i say blades in the dark what do you think of uh well i'm a setting guy in general so i was setting really appealed to me i was a fan of the dishonored uh video game mm-hmm. if you've ever played that mm-hmm. and it, and it sort of struck that that same uh aesthetic for me uh, and then i it was sort of my first introduction to anything related to apocalypse world i hadn't actually played any of the previous iterations of that Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of what it did was new at the moment, which, you know, novel uh, mechanics always are, are fun, at least initially. So those, mm-hmm. those two things really appealed to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Blaze in the Dark does take a lot of its sort of thematic inspiration from two video game series, Dishonored um, and also Thief, uh, which uh, is also sort of industrial, but like stealth criminal focused. Um I, re- I just watched a, a, a video of a guy going re-exploring the Thief series. I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely an inspiration for Blades in the Dark. Um, something about, like, combining Victorian steampunkery with, like, some D&D-esque magic and occult weirdness uh, really makes an interesting uh, setting. But, um, yeah, so, um, Bill, uh, it's been a, a bit since you've been on a main RPPR episode. Uh when I say Blades in the Dark, what do you think of? So probably the first thing that comes to mind is I'm a little sad uh, Caleb isn't here so we can like troll back and forth about this in, in person. But <laughs> I first read Blades back in 2017, and I was really glad that by the time it was coming out, the Red Markets Kickstarter was already finished uh, <laughs> because like the resource management curve like was really similar to me. Uh, mm-hmm. and like, so there was that, um, I, I too had played Dishonored and saw that DNA. The other thing that really got me was the, uh, like it was actually a, a system that wouldn't require miles and miles of kit bashing to, uh, play something that looked like the Gentleman Bastards, uh, novel series. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I've heard good things about that, but yeah, um, Something about taking fantasy and making it um, really focused on shades of gray, selfishness, and criminality. Uh, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of overlap there, um, for sure. For sure. Um, well, like the other thing was was really the like the stress game, mm. like the the little micro game of that resource management. Just like, mm. <laughs> yeah, Every, everyone who's heard me play would would know that like. That is my my kind of jam. Yeah, stress is really the core of Blades in the Dark more so than like they don't. There are injuries; you can be wounded, but wounds are a major thing. Even minor wounds are uh, not insignificant. But like a stress is the is is a lot like rations in Red Market in some way in uh, uh, willpower because it powers so many abilities and so many things require stress. And uh, you can't lower stress really until <laughs> the end of a heist. And um, 
Yeah, that that yeah, the 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 resource management of stress that that seems to be if you had to describe one system as the heart of Blades in the Dark, it would be that the stress management system, um, as opposed to, um, yeah. Well, we'll get into the, uh, comparing yeah. it to other systems later, but like, yeah, that 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 yeah, that's a good point. Um, Aaron, Blades in the Dark, what what comes to mind? Uh, well, honestly, the first thing that came to mind was a lot of the use of the Victoria, uh, Victorian spiritualism, because uh, I definitely got that dis, uh, dishonored mm-hmm. by from what you showed me. But uh, honestly, the fact I was, didn't realize it had so much to do with like spirits being as a physical entity mm-hmm. or that part of the supernatural. And uh, the first thing that came to mind setting wise is similar to uh, a Hellboy spinoff comic called mm-hmm. uh, Edward, Sir Edward Gray Witchfinder. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely deals with all dealing with those occult uh, threats within like the down dirty alleyways of London. That's like, that's like during the Victorian period. So that's really the first thing that kind of stuffed me, uh, especially also the fact that the combining of certain things like the ectoplasm into, you know, their variants of steampunk engines or whatnot, or uh, as I was reading through the crafting system, the fact that you can essentially create a, um, an ectoplasm suit, which is for a disembodied spirit, which is, not unlike what happened to uh, Johan Krauss in the Hellboy series. So that immediately went like, oh, I have a goal in mind. I need a ghost robot. <laughs> yeah, so, they actually, they have hulls, which are, yeah, literally ghost robots. Uh, ghost uh, robots powered by ghosts, specifically, as a uh, major set. We haven't really explored that in our campaign. Uh, but, mm, you know, I think we'll, we'll move into that. Uh, I want a toy, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, that's a that, that uh, that's a good point. Yeah, I would I would Mike McNoll's art would definitely um, be a perfect fit for this. Uh, you just uh, some ruined statuary. Uh, there is literally a ghost district that is just ruins because it's been abandoned because it's beyond uh, the barrier. So um, yeah, so reading the system, um, we I suppose we have to talk about like uh, uh, the system itself before we can well. Um, before we get into too much about the setting. Um, so the system I do like that it's player focused or uh, player facing, sorry, that, you know, players are the ones rolling the dice, um, which is common with all powered by the apocalypse games and also red markets, uh, many other systems because, you know, it puts the, uh, it cuts down on the amount of dice rolling period. Um, and I find um, once we, we, we learned how to do the system, it's not like, gaming the system for additional dice so you you're guaranteed a success it's uh, uh gaming the system so that if you su- get at least a partial success you get a really good effect um and that that's a subtle distinction um because while you do get additional dice uh you can there's a very hard limit on how much you can cap to get additional dice uh it's very hard to cheese the system to where you can be perfectly guaranteed a success but on the other hand there's always a chance of success because you can always roll 6 on 1d6 so um as opposed to finagling modifiers to be virtually guaranteed a success outside of a you know a crit failure which is what happens to a lot of other rpgs um and as a GM, I like that, but I, I imagine as players, that might be a little stressful. Uh, uh, is that, would you change the system to gar- the lab war stacking of dice uh, to guarantee success or all, but, you know, um, or do you like this as it is, or is it stressful to play? I don't know. Um, uh, I'll, let me ask my players first. Uh, uh, Bill, um, what do you feel about that basic dice mechanic in, in Blades, where uh, you can't 
you can only stack get so much of a dice pool like the, uh, there's there's not many things you can do to get additional dice as we have learned um right so um yeah i'll, I'll admit that like i hadn't maybe quite as much noticed the positioning for effect mm-hmm. um but i you know now that you've said it out loud that's that's certainly a, a fair point but like thinking you know just the basic curve i haven't stopped to do the math but like considering that it's it's roll a pool take the top die of the pool you know the point at which you run into like diminishing returns from adding another die comes pretty quickly and two there's the fact that you know we started this game from a from you know square one basically and like i don't think many of us at all have moved into places where like we're carrying around two dots you know in mm-hmm. a skill to let us base roll, you know, two dice. We're having to buy everything along the way, mm-hmm. which is super cool. Um, but I think the, there's definitely going to be a, you know, there, there's a reward for playing the resource management game well in the two get to keep playing the same character, which means over time, if you, you know, lean into your role playing and, and get your XP boxes and, you know, spend them off well, you're, you're eventually going to come to a place where, you know, you are routinely, you know, picking up two or three dice as a baseline mm-hmm. without any stress spend. So I think the growth in character is going to, you know, definitely show, which, which is going to line up a lot with the source material, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Dishonored and Thief, those are both, uh, you know, immersive sim games where that like personal growth is a, is a big part of it. Um, you know, the one, the sort of things we didn't cite at the top, but things that I know that are a part of it, you know, uh, TV series, like I think Peaky Blinders was supposed to be a big influence, which oh, yeah. literally is about like a gang growing, you mm-hmm. know? So I think that that growth curve session to session is, mm-hmm. is an important part of the game. Yeah. Um, Aaron, any thoughts on that? I know, like, in our first sessions of our own RPPR campaign, we kind of got that wrong where we were adding dice because of items, but that's not how it's supposed to go. The the yeah. items only increase your what happens if you succeed or at least get a partial success. Um, and, yeah, just for listeners at home, if you haven't read the system, if you, ro- you roll a pool of dice... Um, and if you're, and you look at the highest die and that's the only thing that matters. And if it's a three or less, it's a failure. If it's a four or five, it's a partial success. And if it's a six, a six, it's an outright success. And you get two or more sixes, then you get a a critical success. Usually like there, there are some times where you can't get a critical, um, but, um, that's, that's it. Like, um, and, but there's very few things that can give you more dice than your baseline action rating. Um, and they all cost, but, um, Aaron, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Like, because you're, um, you're never rolling. It's hard to get more than a couple, two extra dice, really. One really for pushing is. yourself, and one for your com uh, buddy helping you. Yeah, um, or unless you're, yeah, unless you're trying for something else from the effect. And I honestly, actually, even though it's it is stressful to have yeah. to be able to play like that, I think that actually is part of one of the game's strength because it makes every action that you're attempting way more meaningful. And like you said, with the abilities to increase the quality of it, say that you get the five, yeah, it comes off success. It gives you all, all a bunch of other uh, benefits or aspects, but then you're running away from your opposition. You know, it's like you're getting chased by the cops, an engine blows up in your face or something mm-hmm. like that. 
So you have to be really mindful of it. And I think as a player, that actually adds more weight and stakes to it, too, whether you feel like you're actually part. It's like the, the story is still kind of keeping up. And as a GM, although I haven't obviously run this, I think that gives you a lot more opportunities to add challenges or elements of the games. That's not just an abject you pass without any complications or you fail so hard and you're stuck and you mm-hmm. can't do anything else. So I think yeah. that it, it's a, it's really a nice benefit on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jeff, as a, as a, as a published game designer, um, what are your thoughts on this, uh, um, base mechanic? Uh, you know, this is the basic conflict resolution thing. Actually, I have to say, I, I like it. Um, mm-hmm. and for, and for several reasons, and I, and I'll give you an anecdote as to why maybe there's a little more, um, I don't want to say credibility. So we were playing, uh, beam sabers the other night. It's, uh, another forged in the dark game. It's, uh, basically anime mecha robot teenager mm-hmm. thing. Uh, and during the session, I rolled a total of nine dice and six of them were ones. Um, <laughs> so that's not only is that typical of my dice luck, but, um, you know, I still had a good time. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's the heart of it. This, uh, powered by the apocalypse games in general, and certainly Forge in the dark games, they are embracing the idea of failing forward and mm-hmm. complicated successes. I think in much more than certainly traditional incremental games, but even other games where you might feel you have more control over the percentage score that you, that you're rolling against. But ultimately, um, you either succeed or fail in those games as well, right? Mm-hmm. But without without the um, sort of complicating elements that make the story more interesting and still push it forward. So I think even though there there is a pretty um, small range of ways that you can affect the outcome of the dice, mm-hmm. uh, there mechanically the idea that it's failing you forward um, and complicating the story, I think, is a positive. Um, yeah. And also, I think it makes the resource management that Bill's talking about more significant, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're managing stress and you're pushing yourself to get an extra die, it's meaningful. It's meaningful both to the die pool, but also to the resource that you're expending. So it feels more significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, one thing that actually this reminds me of in some ways is the gumshoe sort of point spin system because it's again resource management but um also because i think with the right players this is really good but i think one potential downside of this system is that there are going to be some players who really get too stressed out about this in real life like that the fact that they can never guarantee a success like that they can never um you know spend a point of willpower or whatever or stack so many modifiers that they they cannot fail at something and for some players that 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 anxiety and always possibly failing no matter how many dice they roll because they can never well they can never get that many dice um means that uh they they won't have as much fun playing the system and uh, of course i think those players are probably not gonna like what i mean this game is going for a very particular sort of theme and it's about you know at what price power uh, and wealth you know like how how dark are you willing to go to gain personal you know, personal fortune you know the, the 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 whole thing of you know uh emulating more like movies like scarface than uh in some ways than uh you know lord of the rings kind of i shall do the good thing and gain power doing it um so i think that's a potential downside for it for certain groups i think they're not going to like this um but 
Um, I think you, so you have to be sort of careful if you're, if you're picking blades in the dark to run to uh, be aware that this is, this is going to create some anxiety in players. And uh, now whether they can manage it or not, is sort of, who knows? Um, so, uh, but it, yeah, it does help a lot. Now I kind of, I am curious, are there any mechanics that any of you, don't particularly care for um I mean, after this we'll go we'll pick up the, the sort of mechanics we really do like but like um are there any well, that i'll, I'll yeah. admit to something I, I don't know if it's that i dislike it i'll just say that i don't i don't quite haven't quite internalized it yet uh, even mm-hmm. after running a, a, a fairly lengthy campaign um i the the uh idea of how risky and controlled and desperate interfaces with the potential um, qualities of the outcomes. Mm-hmm. I always felt like uh, I would, I would kind of get stuck on that, trying to make it feel different to the mm-hmm. players. Uh, and mm-hmm. I could never, I was never satisfied in how I made those, those different options feel different in their outcomes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, honestly, I'll, when I, when uh, I, I tend to revert to like risky is the default thing it's a typical RPG action. Like if you're going to do it there, it's going to suck if you fail, but it's not game over, but you will lose something. You will take a hit uh, in some way. Uh, controlled is like, well, if you fail, you, it just becomes a risky action. If you try again, otherwise nothing like it's just, eh, it's not, yeah, it's simple, but it's still difficult enough that you have to roll, you know? Um, and then desperate is like, are you, are you, are you sure you want to do that? Like is, 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 Okay, I I mean, all right, go for it. Um, yeah, I understood the intention, but I could never. Yeah. It never felt like I was able to express it in the fiction mm-hmm. in a way that made made one role option different from yeah. another role option. Yeah, I mean that's fair. That I mean it's very subjective. Like they they don't really give you very concrete. Like this is. I mean they give you examples, but like it's very subjective. Um, and that, that, that sort of, you want to be fair to the players though. And so, yeah, that, that is going to be, am I being fair? Like that, that is kind of a source of anxiety for GMs. You don't want to be like, yeah, a jerk GM or like making it too easy or too hard. Um, yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming with that. Um, that's yeah. Very. Yeah. Um, Bill, is there any, any sort of mechanics you're not, uh, either haven't internalized or you're not particularly a fan of? I mean, I would concur with that. Like, I think, excuse me, that sort of like three by three, you know, matrix uh, mm-hmm. of, of position and effect, like mm-hmm. seems conceptually really great and seems like a level of evolution, right? Like when I read that, that reads to me as, okay, somebody has accepted that the fundamental like challenge of failing forward is that like, now you're on the hook, right? That's the actual improv of GMing, mm-hmm. you know, is, is to in the moment, you know, mm-hmm. hold in your head, like not just the binary of a pass fail, but like, you know, that's, that's where it actually gets into the screenwriting of, you know, it w- like mm-hmm. looking at the video game influences, you know, it's pretty easy. If you try something, you know, in dishonored and fail, like you still have the option, right? Things mm-hmm. are going to get worse. You might've been trying for the stealth run and now you're going to have to kill guards. And like you as a player now are, are engaging the option of, 
do I reload because I wanted to keep my pacifist run Mm -hmm. or what have you. But that's not really in the fiction. But like, if you look at the fictional versions, you know, that uh, the fiction that is trying to be emulated, like those fail forwards, obviously, you know, very, very infrequently do, you know, the, uh, the thieves uh, in, Oh gosh, what was the first book? Anyway, in the Gentleman Bastard series, you know, if they fail outright, it was for a planned story reason by the author. Likewise, if something absolutely goes pear-shaped in Peaky Blinders, like that was for a good reason. Those sort of like, you know, you get what you want, but it hurts things are things that those authors or those screenwriters like have a chance to write out beforehand. Mm -hmm. And like, I think position and effect are are a step forward in like understanding how to adjudicate mm-hmm. uh fail fail forward but i think it's just you know it's still sort of underdeveloped right yeah. like it's yeah. great at a conceptual level i think there's just like one more level of really like grinding it into the practical that i'm mm-hmm. yeah i would i would agree especially um position and effect are very murky for me. So like, uh, so I'm not quite where Jeff is, but like position and effect are, are like, like making it, um, especially with the par- partial successes, like, well, I guess you get reduced effect, but I can't, it's the, you know, like you're trying to get through a door. Well, um, what's reduced effect for getting through a door? Like you're picking, trying to pick the lock and you, okay, well, that's kind of a binary thing. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's hard to adjudicate that on the fly, um, especially um, if you can't always come up with. Uh, now they have a lot of tools for like adjudicating that by like, oh, you get stress or you get heat, um, or you could take an injury in on the context, or you have to spend coin, um, or it happens to someone else. So they have multiple levers that you can use for position and effect, but it 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 can be hard to figure it out because it's all you have to all kind of improvise it. Um, on the fly, there's no like, okay, if you fail this type of role, you take this kind of penalty exactly or something like that. So, right. Um, and and yeah. I feel like, um, so I was actually listening to, to Ken and Robin last week and they were mm-hmm. talking about like gumshoe and how it is, you know, more, still more of a trad style game mm-hmm. in that, you know, as a player, you're fairly limited in, in gumshoe in the ways in which you can affect the fiction right? You're still predominantly driving a single character. And I think mm-hmm. the interesting thing about Blades is that it occupies such a middle ground between the trad and story game space mm-hmm. in that, like, I think the things we're all struggling with here is that we come from, you know, more trad kind of backgrounds and mm-hmm. that it's a little weird to us to not roll dice for more, you know, ultimately <laughs> mundane or stakeless things. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, we're we're having to adjust to think about okay so it's not necessarily all on ross as the gm to uh to come up with you know the way in which my character fails forward or you know the devil's bargain you know mm-hmm. that i am saying i am willing to take that like all of us sitting around the table can contribute to the fiction in that way that's just a change in stance that i, I think we're all adapting to yeah um yeah there there's different expectations for it and so like i think it's sort of readjusting yeah that mindset is definitely is definitely an issue um even after running scum and villainy for like six or eight sessions um i'm still having to adjust it uh 
yeah, because Blades is subtly different than Scum and Villainy. Um, so, um, Aaron, are there any mechanics that you're either not 100% clear on or you just don't care for? Uh, the only thing I know I've struggled with a little bit, and I've had to read it over it a couple times, is primarily with the crafting side, mm-hmm. since uh, I decided to play a leech in there, since, you know, tech, big surprise there, I know. Um, yeah. But uh, looking through it, it wasn't so much just I didn't understand how things may have worked into there, but getting into the lore setting and how they want to combine things. And uh, I read through the, you know, the crafting examples that they gave a couple times before. And to me, if you're wanting to invent something, I'm not. And since we haven't really done this outside of some minor things, it seems like an original idea is going to be like potentially a several uh, sessions thing. Uh, because yeah. Looking mm-hmm. on it, they, they talked about like the flamethrower being the primary one. They said that's going to be like an eight segment long just to plan out the project, which uh, that seems a bit excessive. I. Uh, in the system, depending on like how much downtime you get with mm-hmm. that as well. Um, but I'm slowly learning it a little bit more. It just, at first it seemed to be, well, I, th- I think the thing is though, um, I'm looking at it literally right now um, yeah. to design it is eight segments, but once you craft it, it's just one tinker roll. So it's one downtime activity to craft it once um, or to one, one item of it. So well, yeah. one, one thing of it. So like one bandolier of, whatever bomb or drug or like one gadget. So like, that's the thing is like, once you design it, then you, you can just crank them out. Yeah. You know, one per downtime activity. So, Which I can but see yeah, that. yeah, yeah, that is, that, that is a bit. Yeah, it is um, on long-term projects and acquire asset do seem to be underpowered downtime activities um, compared to the mainstays. Um, but yeah, um, that's fair. That is a bit advanced, especially for your character since you're a leech. Uh, yeah the tinkerer type so um yeah that's fair um it doesn't see yeah um it's more of a role-playing thing than like a power gaming thing because it it requires such so much time and resources in order to craft something new it's more like i want to be the guy with the flamethrower that's how i visualize my character that's how i that's how that's their personality they're the guy with the flamethrower yeah, um. and it made it also just a little part of the lore of the system too, because that's where I kind of hit an, a, a, a little bit of a brick wall when we first started. Is that mm-hmm. I was looking, trying to look through the stuff that it, you were given as characters, like, all right, how can I combine these elements? And then it said, like, well, you kind of need to be have the alchemist side for this, or you need to have the mm-hmm. uh, uh, the artificer or the uh, or the arcane portion of that, which are all available. But like when we started the campaign, you're just usually restricted to one of those playbook, one of those abilities yeah. in the playbook. I'm like, eh. so that's Aww. where you kind of, it's turned into like the, the bomb throwing Bolshevik just at the first, like, well, here you go. Hope, yeah. it, hope it helps. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so for me, um, the mechanic, I'm kind of, um, aside from what you mentioned that, 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 that is sort of been a problem for me is the engagement role. So when you start a, a score, which is what they you call missions or heists, you know, um, a job, a thing, a, a quest your group has to do uh, or chooses to do. Um, before you do anything, you have to, the, there's this thing about like figuring out um, what the initial role's difficulty is going to be. And this is called the engagement role. And so basically you rack up your, you look at your, how many advantages you have and how many disadvantages you have. And then you, then the G, this is one of the few times the GM rolls because it's essentially the GM rolls a uh, pool of D6s, and then based on that, that determines whether it's a controlled role, a risky role, or a desperate role. And um, for me, it seems a little unnecessary. Like, um, the 
and also you have to choose like what type of plan. And I, and I appreciate this, like trying to get the players to focus. Okay. What type of plan is this? But like, is this all out assault? Is this stealth? Are you, is this a con job? Is, are you using magic? Um, but I feel myself sort of skipping over the more I run this, the more I'm trying to skip over or just kind of skim the, the engagement role because the players usually have a really good idea of what they want to do. And their initial, the, when they start the plan, I have a usually good idea of how desperate or how risky this action is going to be. Like, is this, yeah, you know, like we're going to con them in the first thing is to get like uh, disguises for everybody. So we're going to go sneak into the, uh, break into the barracks to steal the blue coat uniforms and like well that that seems like that's pretty risky so like uh but you know the, the players aren't they're waiting till night or whatever so that's not desperate they're they're taking some time to do it so um so i feel yeah go on i i actually think there was something revelatory in what you just said there mm-hmm. um that like you as a, as a GM, and I'm not saying this is, you know, wrong or a bad thing to do, but like you are sort of judging the quality of the plan there. And my mm-hmm. read of the engagement role is that like in being a heist game that dispatches with planning, like Blades doesn't actually want to answer as a matter of the GM having to make that decision whether the plan was a good idea or not. Mm-hmm. the engagement role basically reduces to math. Did you actually come up with a good plan? Okay. All right. Um, yeah. yeah, I would, I would uh, kind of echo that. And I think I experienced it more as a uh, kind of a literal um, opening moment in the mm-hmm. story. Uh, in fact, to kind of uh, do a callback to the through line of, of heists in role-playing games, I think, uh, that's one of the strengths is that Blades does a lot of things to um, honor the heist story in and without having um, to have a bunch of people who really dig or are good at planning sitting around the table. Uh, and I think the engagement role is one of them. Like our story has begun and you are doing this thing and it's you're in a good position. And I don't mean within mm-hmm. the rules of the game, but like the things that are happening around you, the fiction is going well going so-so or you know you just knocked over the vase and it's shattered on the floor uh, and i think i think that's a one of the many tools that the game provides um and sometimes silly to support heist fiction mm-hmm. okay yeah i mean i'm not like i'm not saying i'm getting rid of it it's just it 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 seems kind of clunky by the time we get into it uh at least as it, it, as i've been running it lately um, because it seems like the players want to skip past it and I have to like, whoa, okay, okay let's do our engagement roll. Hold on. Let me figure out what all your modifiers are for this, this dice roll. Um, so in some way, yeah, I, I feel, so that maybe is my annoyance to it is that, and part of that I think is going back to what Bill's saying. We're, we're just sort of making the, the typical, you know, trad RPG thing of rolling for everything. Um, so the players are already like, okay, I'm going to roll. I'm going to go ahead and roll to detect traps. Like, well, that's not how this works. You just roll to see if you, you do the whole sneaking in and breaking, you know, the, for your whole burglary, which you just, it's just one roll. Um, and let me sort of set the, let me set the, the, the risks. Let me, let me tell you what will happen if you succeed or fail before you roll. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think I would actually lay that at the, you know, of us as your players sort of mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I know 
I read Blades Through back in 2017. And, yeah. You know, it's, I think the engagement role is a, is a relatively important part, but it's also, you know, just a couple of pages out of a mm-hmm. pretty chunky boy of a book. Yeah. So like, it's pretty easy to forget, but I think, you know, even in the midst of this discussion, like regrounding it in what is the fictional point of this? Well, mm-hmm. it's to, I mean, f- from a greedy perspective, it's to reinforce to the players that we don't have to do that planning because mm-hmm. like that planning ceases to be, you know, essentially a standard, you know, engagement like this in another game would be, you know, us, the group of players essentially trying to, you know, appeal to the GM to say, you know, what is the threshold of enough, you know, quality planning to mm-hmm. not put ourselves in a bad situation. And really it's just taking that burden off of both parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So That's one right. of the things that one of the tools in my, in my um, running heist game toolbox for RPGs is the, the idea of, in media res openings or in media res moments. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the engagement role is, is essentially that um, it provides sort of an in media res start for the, for the players that bypasses all the dithering that usually goes into getting some sort of plan in place and, and on its way. Um, mm-hmm. I just really appreciate that because I think it's a, a useful uh, structuring mechanic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you give me, yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not going to drop the engagement rules. So, um, hopefully we'll get used to letting me like not trying to rush past me setting up the engagement first. Um, and me or me forgetting to, uh, if we do heists, uh, you know, for next session. Um, I mean, but yeah, I'll, I'll I, be the I, designated pedant to like keep calling it back. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no Just worries. Need an engagement light. Yeah, yeah. This is the complicated uh, way of us telling you you're wrong, Ross. That's <laughs> it's it's really not. It's discussion. <laughs> it's discussion. Um, so we should probably actually move to the uh, 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 mechanics that we actually do. I mean, we do. I do quite enjoy quite a few mechanics. And uh, your talk about uh, you know running heist is one of the. I'll just I'll just start with one of the mechanics I really enjoy, uh, which is the flashback mechanic, um, which. Um, now I've heard horror stories of, of GMs who misuse this by uh, imposing stress costs on all flashbacks, but flashbacks are like zero to two stress, depending on how complicated they are. And I've been certainly leaning as a GM mostly is like it's zero or one most of the time. Uh, and that's a, allowing players to jump into scenes and also like, Oh, I just thought of something cool. Now can I flashback and say I did this? And like, yeah, of course that's explicitly written in the game. So like you, of course I had a fake ID set up. Well, of course I would be waiting in ambush to protect my buddy who obviously just flubbed his uh, skirmish role to take out the guard. So, um, or his finesse role to sneak up on the, or prowl or whatever. Uh, uh, of course I knew I was going to poison all the wine at the dinner party. So of course I would have brought an antidote. Exactly, exactly, in case one of us uh, uh, accidentally sipped it. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoy that that flashback mechanic. It really encourages players, especially players who are, like, there There are times where everybody, the player group is split up and, like, well, I guess I'm not in the scene, so I'm just going to look at my phone for the next 20 minutes. Well, no, 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 because the flashback, you could just say you were there. Uh, you were there all along. Ha-ha. Um, so that is a mechanic I really like. Um Aaron, what is the mechanic you really like? Uh, actually, one thing that kind of I it felt like it was a little bit irritated by it the last mm-hmm. time, but I, the more that I thought about it, 
the clock structure specifically going back towards healing mm-hmm. and dealing with some of the stress uh, over time too, because I like it the idea that you would have to go ahead and forward and role play maybe some of the injuries or maybe some of the long term effects of things going forward in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you can actually, and, and that you're just generally building up to it because, uh, building up to like rebuilding what you need in that particular session or modifying how you're going to play. Like the yeah. last one I got beaten. Well, uh, yeah, uh, you, yeah. You took some injuries. Yeah, let's you, 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 you took some injuries and, uh, yeah, no, I really do like that too. It's very thematic. Injuries are significant and, uh, it takes some time to heal and, when you're healing, you can't be going out doing other stuff uh, exactly. as much. So, so it, at um, least it yeah. gives a, a more of a grounded sense of realism in this story about heisting in a Victorian ghost world. So yeah, yeah, um, uh, bruises don't heal overnight. There's no you don't sleep in an inn and recover at full health. Um, <laughs> so I, I I do like that. Um, yeah, uh, Jeff, what's a mechanic you really like in Blades? Well, um, I'm, I'll start by echoing what you said about flashbacks. Mm-hmm. I, I think. Uh, I mean, as you know, the reason I'm talking to you guys right now, I think, is because after the last heist episode, I'm like, well, heists are my favorite thing in role-playing games. Why didn't you? So uh, <laughs> I, I whined enough that I think you felt bad and invited me to, to come talk about them. But um, I think one of the things that, that um, is essential to heist RPG uh, play and structure is recognizing a, a couple of essentials. One of them is this metatrope that exists, I think, in, in popular heist fiction and movies and things. Mm-hmm. It's audience awareness. There's a structure to the story that you know that you don't know everything that's going on, and you're trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a movie, they, you, you, they can hide things from the audience and then reveal them at the end. Mm-hmm. And try as you might, that is nigh impossible to do in a role-playing game. Yeah, that's true. The yeah. mechanics of, of uh, sitting around a table. Um, mm-hmm. So anything that adds structure to the the heist that gives it some sort of meta control, some kind of fourth wall influence from the players and, and their experience of it, I think helps reach towards that. It doesn't replace it, but it reaches towards that. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I think that the flashback mechanic is the best way that I've seen in role-playing games to do that. So definitely lean on that in Blades. Um, really enjoy it, uh, both in terms of just how it affects the narrative, but also how it makes it feel heisty. Um, mm-hmm. but, if, but if I were to sort of pick a, a different mechanic, um, I really appreciate how many little subtle ways the game lets you address another part of heist games um, is the idea of failing forward. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if if we take a classic example of breaking into a bank vault and you fail to crack the vault, then the, the narrative sort of halts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a playing game, that's a that's a lame session. You want to be able to to keep going with the story in some way that's fun. Um, and Blades is just full of options to do that. I mean, really, if you look at uh, how the game allows you to fail forward, and this is just some thoughts. I don't know. There might be other ways too, but the engagement role itself. Um, doesn't set up uh, a failure. It just puts you in a situation. I think that's pretty valuable. Obviously, the flashbacks, uh, pushing as a mechanic, allowing you to get another a dice bonus by sacrificing some stress. Mm-hmm. I think that's really good. Double bargain, same. Oh yeah, 
Devil's the bargains way. are fun, but they they take a bit on the GM because it's like, what's it's, a fair devil's bargain? Hmm. It's costly, but it yeah. does give you a chance to, if not exactly fail forward, to sort of hedge your bet so that you won't fail. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of clocks, I think, is essential. You know, I've heard people compare them to skill tests in like D and D, what they call skill challenge. Is that what the D and D? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically what they are. I think yeah. they visual. I think they visualize better as a clock, mm-hmm. but um. They are a great way to uh, allow failure that stops the the game and and continue the story forward. You know, do the guards show up? Well, there's another tick on the clock, another tick on mm-hmm. the clock. So it lets you fail. Um, I think stress as a mitigator um, is huge, and and loadouts. The fact that your loadouts don't have to be preset that you can be like, oh crap, I wish I had some wire cutters. Oh hey, I have some wire cutters. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, yeah, I think that little good. toolbox of things that allow you to fail forward or at least hedge your bets against failing um, mm-hmm. are are really valuable parts of making this feel like a heist game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Bill, any other mechanics you want to highlight? Well, Jeff just stole my go-to uh, with the loadouts <laughs> uh, because I, I do agree that like it, it further contributes to like getting you out of the planning doldrums and actually into doing the fun part of the heist and you know even further contributes like like you were saying jeff you know uh that the need for that like fourth wall breaking thing comes about i think because you know when we're playing a role-playing game like streaming or recording for a podcast notwithstanding like the audience is also the performers uh so so that you know there's a lot of little elegant ways that that blades gives you to allow you to surprise yourself basically um but i think probably the single thing and and everyone's used to hearing me harp on this at this point but like the difference that in the stress economy if you boost yourself it costs twice as much as if someone else boosts you Mm -hmm. uh just like is is so subtle but is so important uh, because, you know, it essentially tells you, you know, this is a game where some party splitting is okay, but you don't actually want to go off and do something by yourself. And the think, game is about teamwork. It's about yeah. teamwork. You're a crew. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it is subtle and shouts so loud at the same time. I just mm-hmm. love it. Mm-hmm. No, am that, that I, yeah. Am I hearing that your that your crew is not? Uh, no, they've been well, pretty good we about play, that. We play role playing games, Jeff, yeah. So occasionally no, no. people go off by themselves. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, but uh, you guys have been pretty good about. No. The, can Can anyone help me out with this? Oh, okay. You know, uh, there's there's been a lot of share the share the share the load uh uh, uh or share the stress uh uh in the in the game uh so far but we'll see if that keeps going uh forward um yeah uh and by the way jeff by the way this is not when you mentioned that you wanted to uh talk about highs i was like oh thank god another person because there's just so many podcasts to do in a year Uh, it's (laughs) it's just oh god yes just content yes give it to me yes yes yeah oh uh precious precious i I could uh, be there for you (laughs) for the content god apparently yeah yeah Make a little aside if you don't mind. Um, I, I want to acknowledge uh, Ben Hesketh. You know him. Uh, I think mm-hmm. you've met him times. He's a big fan of the show. Um, he and I have spent a lot of time talking about heist role-playing games, and he actually did a uh, really fun conversion of the Red Markets 
mechanics. Oh she's, yeah, cool. um, Kale ran a playtest for us. Yeah, um, yeah, and and I, I didn't want to make it sound like I I had all these great ideas about this fourth wall mechanic and and mm-hmm. intentionally tricking the audience because really it was he he that opened my eyes to to that in in role playing games as a connection to the traditional heist fiction. Um, mm-hmm. But I know he's likely to listen to this, and I just wanted to make sure to give him a shout out. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we have the playtest actually on our latest B sides. Um, I, I, I'm not going to check right now, but um, yeah, it was a fun game. Um, you did some like very Caleb, clever things with it that I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. It was fun. Yeah, uh, Caleb's sort of in the depths of writing for God's Teeth right now, but after that, who knows uh, if you'll help Ben with that? Um, I don't. Yeah, I have no idea what what's. I mean, and obviously, in the last couple of months, everybody's schedule has been kind of <laughs> screwed up. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, uh, of course, we you know we were talking about the system. We should we talk a little about the setting though, at least. Um, so um Duskwall is very interesting as a setting because I have to remind myself, one, there's no there's no daytime. Like it's always dark and it's only varying levels of darkness. So um which is obviously dishonored as as you know, an inspiration still has daytime uh in it. So um it's a it's it's kind of a post post apocalyptic uh, well, setting. Blades in the day night cycle doesn't really have the same ring. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um there's also the fact that it's very focused on the city of Duskwall uh, to the point that they only describe the city and they, they kind of describe what else is in the world, but there's no world map and there's very little aside from like, Oh, this there's the city of Lockport and there's these other countries out there. Um, so you there, there be, but you know, the, for example, in the RPPR campaign, the players are smugglers and they have a boat. Um, so, there, there is be this. Well, I guess we could run eventually. Maybe the players have to take smuggle something to Lockport, which is uh, certainly within uh, shipping range because ships go there uh, uh, and back. Um, but because the the so that's something I've been sort of like I I both really like and appreciate the narrow but really deep focus on one city. But on the other hand, there's like, well, what if I want to go outside of Duskwall? I don't want to, and that requires me to just basically make up everything, um, which. I kind of want to give the players at least like I want to make it fair for the players. Like you have the same access to the same setting information as everyone else. So you, you can, you know, you're not, it's not just, aha, I've made up an enchanted realm Come and you know, it's all made up and you don't know any of the rules of this place. Um, so yeah, I, I know that part of this philosophy is that there's not really much in the way of like supplement expanse and splat books and that kind of thing. But I, I, I don't know. I kind of would like at some point an Atlas or a world, uh, the world of Duskfall uh, kind of supplement at some point. But um, yeah, I guess, I mean, that's a good thing. You know, you, it, it left me wanting more. Um, so um, yeah. Uh, uh, any other sort of, I guess, insights about the setting, um, Aaron, you're new to the setting aside from, from the campaign. You haven't really, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, what really struck you about the campaign uh, setting? Um mainly when I kind of read through the bit of it, it's a new talk about Dustfall itself too, is well, that, just blades in the dark at the setting, all oh, the setting stuff that's in there, not just the city, but like setting elements, you know, you could talk about the supernatural, the technology, yeah. the culture, um, whatever. Yeah. It really was the supernatural element that kind of, like I said before, that just ended up striking me as the most interesting as well. And, uh, as, and the odd way that they kind of put this, I'm, I'm trying to find a better way than saying steampunk, obviously, but like, ectopunk i guess mm-hmm. if you could put that is that they put such an emphasis on like bending these horrible ghosts that exist 
in this reality to your own whim and to your own ability to use that as well. Um, and also the decaying, that's uh, the decaying ruin aspect of the city, even at the, in the highest standards too, which uh, especially if you're trying to do any of this, uh, any of these uh, like dark, that's uh, like, that's uh, like dark and dirty, uh, lack of a better term, lock, stock and two smoking barrels, but in the Victorian period, mm-hmm. uh, robberies, that's uh, like high stories too. It, uh, it, it gives me a very good feeling about that too. Like, it's like, how do you basically try to survive while everything around you is essentially the fall of the house of Usher? Okay. Yeah. Fair. Um, yeah, it is. It is a refreshing thing from the, you know, generic D and D medieval game of Thrones, medieval, medieval uh, which your fantasy. That's very original copyright. Do not steal my characters. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a refreshing change of pace. Um, yeah, uh, Bill. Any, you know, what what strikes you? What what what? Any, either good or bad. Uh, 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 what really struck you about the setting? Hmm. Um, I I think it's challenging for me to not just sort of like let my mind glide to, you know, the other dusk wall. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I wasn't that didn't they accidentally have the the same name in common uh from uh from dishonored or or at least it was very similar no dunwall dunwall is the name and i oh, just played right. dishonored so, too so, so different. yeah excuse me <laughs> <laughs> yeah just starting with du i mean it's fine yeah uh yeah. two out two two syllables yeah yeah um, um but but like to me it it lands largely in that sort of space like plus again, like having read the you know Lock Lamora stuff, like especially the the Liza Lock Lamora, the first book taking place in a very Venice inspired city, like given that that Duskwall you know also is very maritime sort of in its stance, and then like the other thing, like I, I'm almost saying nothing here, and I realize I'm sort of yammering on about it, and I apologize for that, but like I, I just sort of like see the confluence of influences. The other one being, it sort of has, in a non-comedic way, a certain Ankh-Morpork kind of vibe to it, to where it's just all of those things sort of colliding in a mm-hmm. very, like, lovely sort of, you know, I, I think if it was, I was to say anything, what I recall from, like, reading through the book, you know, especially, was that it was really nice how there was such, like, fine-grained detail it didn't really you know even though there obviously is a thousands of years ago uh it doesn't really deal with that at all it's just here are the gangs that you may interact with here are the various things they do right it is very i know this is a loaded term around here but street level mm-hmm. okay yeah um certainly uh an important consideration consideration um yeah. Uh, Jeff, any any uh, thoughts on the setting? Yeah. I mean, I, I like it in, in broad strokes very much. Um, and I, like I said on the outset, I, because I really like Dishonored. But <laughs> what I appreciate it most about this the, the setting as it's presented is I think it's a perfect example of the, of the ideal combination of, of uh, information, mm-hmm. uh, but, but spare information, and being mm-hmm. evocative. Um, as a setting guy, I mean, in my own world building in the games I've worked on, I, I'm really into like detail and, and including everything and 
and not missing uh, any little part that someone might want to know about, um, you know, and, and that has a place. But one thing I absolutely can't do, and so admire when people can, is provide enough information that it starts ideas trickle uh, percolating and gives you inspiration without just filling page after page. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a really potent kind of writing that I think is hit perfectly in in this book, uh, and one that just makes it enjoyable to read, but also a great way to generate ideas for for the game. Mm-hmm. So I really, I really appreciate that about how the settings presented. Yeah, the broad strokes thing does like leave a lot uh, for the GM to fill in. I mean, everything is yeah, yeah, broad strokes. Um, and one thing I do like is on the GM, the first page of the GM sort of reference sheet is a list of in common names uh, for the setting, both first names and family names and nicknames, and also important NPCs in the city. And they're just like one, like Raffaello, painter, interested in the occult. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I can use that guy. Um, and which he became an NPC in the latest game. Uh, and yeah, the, yeah. So that, that, that's just as an organizational thing, not even really a setting specific thing, but yeah, it's not, there are some RPGs that describe the setting so meticulously. There's no room for the PCs to do because everything's, if you, if you PCs do anything, they'll just, it's like a, a hitting a bunch of dominoes and it's like, okay, right. well, yeah. And on uh, the other end with a lot of power by the apocalypse stuff, it's so spare. Mm-hmm. That it's almost setting independent in many ways. Yeah, the uh, um, a lot of powered by the apocalypse games are like tools. And so I feel games. like I feel yeah. like this just sort of hits that right note for mm-hmm. plenty of material to play with, um, but you don't need to uh, have memorized a gazetteer. Yeah, to run it. Yeah. So um, yeah, if you haven't played or read uh, Blades in the Dark yet, uh, and this sounds interesting to you, should probably give it a shot. Uh, this fall we'll have a campaign. I'm not sure how many sessions we'll get in. Uh, it all depends on people's work schedules, which are uh, kind of in, up in the air a little bit, but uh, we've already got at least four uh, episodes recorded. So uh, yeah, that'll be fun. Um, it's been quite fun uh, for us to play through. Um, and uh, but yeah, when we come back, we'll have some shout outs. And we're back with whatever, maybe not, it doesn't have to be Vaporwave. It could be something else. Uh, probably going to be Vaporwave, though, right? Defensive, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have some shout outs. Um, I'll just go first uh, with a book I'm reading right now. We're well rereading and I've read the entire story before, uh, but it is, well, it's a graphic novel uh, from Casey green. It is called, he is a good boy. Um, it is a really good uh, sort of odyssey of a little uh, uh, boy. His name is, well, is a, he's an acorn uh, named Crange. And uh, he has his, uh, his, his parent tree, gets cut down and he has to find his way in the world. And uh, it's a Casey green comic. It gets weird. It goes places, but uh, it's about weird. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, it starts, he, I mean, it starts with an acorn, a talking acorn and uh, he lives in bug world that, that coexists along with the, the normal size people. That's yeah. Yeah. So it starts weird. All right. And it gets weirder. Uh, there's okay. homages to bugs, bunny. There's, um just some great art and also really interesting storyteller about sort of like 
what is the purpose of life? What is, you know, uh, uh, the aimlessness of, um, you know, and alienation of modern society. Um, and, uh, just a lot of weirdness and a, lot of, a bit of cosmic horror, especially towards the end. Uh, so he is a good boy, I believe is online, but there is a big full color, uh, book of it available. Uh, I highly recommend that. Um, so I, it was on Kickstarter, came out, a while ago, but uh, I just finally got around to rereading it, and I uh, re- remembered how much I enjoyed it. It's just got really good art. I love Casey's style, so um, yeah. If you if you like weird uh, odysseys about bugs and acorn talking acorns, and yeah, uh, it's I feel worth like reading. I yeah. read like yeah. two thirds of this back in the day, mm-hmm. and it puts me in mind of the only thing that is worth retaining from the movie, the spirit, which is Samuel L. Jackson saying that is just plain damn weird. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's very weird. Um, Yeah. So uh, Jeff, what's your first shout out? Um, Playing in a campaign right now of uh, UVG of the ultraviolet grasslands. Mm -hmm. It was a recent Kickstarter. It was one of those games. I don't know if you guys have this, but you see a game and you really are excited about it, but you don't want to, mm-hmm. you want to play it. Yeah. Um, it was one of those. And I kind of poked a friend of mine who's in our gaming group and wanted to run something, but never really has. And so he took a big bite because it's a, not the easiest sort of mm-hmm. to run, I don't think. But mm-hmm. um, it's just uh, a, a beautiful, evocative uh, book. The aesthetic is amazing. I, to me, I think artwork is brilliant, um, and it's got this just this funky, weird writing style. Um, very, um, very much trying to evoke sort of like seventies, eighties album cover art. <laughs> yeah, as if it were the backdrop for a role playing game. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the best pitch for it is if you're familiar with the heavy metal movie from mm-hmm. oh, yeah. something, the animated yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. 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 The last segment, uh, one I think it's called Tarna, about the woman with the sword on the flying pterodactyl fighting the mutants. Yeah. And the wasteland that they travel through and, and the sort of threats they face. That's what it kind of feels like, is that turned into a role-playing game. Um, and it's just having a good time with it. And it's it just has a, a fresh take that um, is just nice to experience. Cool. Yeah. No, I I have seen references to it on uh, in various discussions online, and I'm very curious about it. And yeah, there there's a lot of RPGs I definitely got. I want to I want to play so bad, um, and not as a GM but as a player. And uh, certainly, there's a lot of like Lancer would be one. But I, well, I also want to run that too. So, but yeah, I I, I totally know what you mean. <laughs> so yeah, it has a it has a nice structural mechanic to it too. Um, not not the same as Red Marks. But, you know, Red Markets has the, the vignettes and the negotiation and the and the legs and and mm-hmm. the job. This has a different kind of um, meta structure, but it does have a, a very long map. Uh, literally, it's like ten feet long. Uh, if you connected all the pages, uh, and you're traveling from point to point on the map, and then there are structures in the game to give you encounters and and experiences and as some mechanical benefits. Oh, as you cool! Travel yeah. these places. And nice. one of the char- one of the players is supposed to actually track all the the progress of your caravan, and the map is not only a thing that should be at the table that you can write on, but mm-hmm. it should also be in the game, and the, your, the game master is supposed to keep track of where it is, 
So mm-hmm. that damage happens to like if that backpack gets stolen or if the wagon burns down, they are instructed to sort of like modify the map or damage the map accordingly mm. so that you lose information or or have blank spots in your Ooh, stuff like, that, like that that just makes yeah. it neat little touches yeah that would be pretty easy to modify for online games is the gm just has a is the one controlling the image of the map and then just says all right players don't screenshot this here it is and yeah we've then been playing it, online so it's, it's yeah, pretty, yeah pretty convenient yeah okay well this section got burned so let me take the burn tool at photoshop and all right <laughs> um there you go uh yeah that's I, I i like that i really like that idea um uh bill uh do you have a shout out sure uh first one is actually going to be to a uh fantasy or maybe sci-fi i don't know uh book that uh actually the founder of my company recommended to me uh it is it is a robert or Roger, sorry, wrong our name, Zelazny book uh, that is not uh, Chronicles of Amber. Um, mm-hmm. It is The Lord of Light, or I think just Lord of Light, um, which, gosh, it's almost hard to discuss without being slightly spoilery, not really in a plot way, but just uh, suffice it to say, um, it is several generations on from a colony ship from Earth uh, landing, and the colonists who actually disembarked that ship, um, deciding to set themselves up as a replication of the Hindu pantheon. And what happens when one of the people involved decides that maybe that wasn't such a good idea? Um, <laughs> and actually, the story is largely a flashback about the last time he decided this was a bad idea. Um, mm-hmm. But like... You know, Roger Zelazny, I think, is one of those people that maybe, I don't know, maybe everybody else has read him and I'm late to the game. Uh, but, like, being a pretty big Gaiman fan uh, and knowing that there's sort of an agony of influence there, let's just say that in the first chapter, uh, the the protagonist uh, delivers a what might be best termed as a somewhat Buddhist homily. Uh, where he capital letters drops the terms dream and endless. And it's just sort of like, ah, I see what's going on here. Oh, um, nice. Uh, yeah, I could, yeah, I, I, yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah, they, that would be an influence on uh, Gaiman. Um, he's yeah, one of the big names in sci-fi of the, uh, God, I think it was the seventies, eighties, that, that sort of later. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, even yeah. earlier. I, I, yeah. Like digging into the history a little bit, I had been meaning to dig into some new wave authors, mm-hmm. but it turns out like he actually is maybe the guy that immediately predates the new wave. So. Okay, yeah, hmm. yeah, no, he's a big name in uh, uh, genre fiction. Um, so yeah, uh, he's also a big gap in my own reading thing. I need to, I need to, I, I've very, I've read very little of them. Um, so I need to, that, oh, I yeah. need to fix. Yeah, well, that's a good. Sounds like a good starting it's, place for it. Yeah. It's a good one, and it is. I want to say under three hundred pages. Um, okay, yeah, and that's like the yeah. only like that that Buddhist homily is is maybe a bit of a slog but mm-hmm. apart from that it reads real breezy cool um neat um aaron what's your what's your first shout out uh so uh the main channel i have today uh, is actually a channel i've been watching for a while uh called odin makes it's a mm-hmm. crafting channel uh for cosplay props and uh different costumes by a guy named odin abbott uh mm-hmm. actual name uh i 
first caught wind of him several about a couple of years ago when uh, he was doing things for another series called DIY Prop Shop, which mm-hmm. primarily focused on being able to do different uh, decent looking props that on on a budget, basically without having to spend down. And where he focuses mostly is being to do making really neat prop replicas out of uh, primarily uh, craft foams. Uh, mm-hmm. He's kind of upgraded doing the like the cosplay HD foams, which is not too expensive, but uh, he does a lot of really impressive things. Like uh, one of the things uh, he does a bunch of Marvel props, but one of the things I remember he did recently was uh, over this last year while he's been in uh, quarantine with at least one of his friends is a full RX 78 Gundam suit, uh, which is again, primarily almost craft. Uh, I originally came to him because I was looking for ways to create a, a nice, uh, right hand of doom and mm-hmm. it the, he actually puts out plans he does everything to show you how it works and gives a lot of advice and the nice thing he, he does is that he particularly makes things in a way and gives instructions for people who might not have power tools and says mm-hmm. like hey here's where you can get this all this stuff is easily picked up locally if you can get to that or it can be delivered on the cheap so uh and like the, the current thing that he's done that's been really nifty is that he's been crafting uh various different phone based masks uh, that you can inline with t-shirt materials if you want to wear a mask out in public that doesn't look just like a regular mask. So I know he did. Uh, actually, you said you were watching Hero, My Hero. Oh, no, you weren't watching My Hero Academy. That was something different. So, but, uh, yep. so, but he made a bunch of different things. So, uh, but yeah, yep. it's, it's a really, it's a really cool channel. So I'd recommend watching it if you want some tips right. or plans. We'll have a link in the show notes. Um, uh, so yeah, my next shout out is The Other Side of the Mountain by uh michael uh bernanos it is a short novel uh or a novella um it is a very weird uh story uh of a uh young guy who is shanghai onto a ship uh and this ship is going to the new world uh to take part in the spanish conquest um and it doesn't go well for him uh the, the way that he he befriends the ship's cook and becomes the ship's sort of like the assistant cook uh but um so the first half of the novel is them the ship becomes becalmed uh bad things happen but then they get ashore and then the things get really weird um if you already have the weird uh anthology which we have mentioned before on the show it's a great uh, thing but you also get this as a standalone uh novella but it's just Boy, it's a weird ass story, uh, and I don't want to say too much about it because I, it, 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 I don't want to spoil it. But like, it gets into this sort of cosmic horror in some ways, and it's just um, stories don't have to make sense. Like, it's just like things that happen, and like, why did it happen? What, what, what is the cause of this? Yeah. It's just uh, I just I really get a bit of weird fiction that I enjoyed. So um, worth reading if you're into that. Um, but um, Jeff, you had another shout out. Yeah, uh, I wanted to um, talk about a, another game. Uh, it's called The Edge Dawnfall, uh, and it's by Awaken Realms. They are probably best known for a, a game called Nemesis, which is sort of the Aliens, the board game that was hot off Kickstarter last year, mm-hmm. uh, and another game, uh, Tainted Grail. It's another big box um, I don't want to call it a minis game because it's more than that. Um, I really like it for a couple of reasons. One, it's um, got lots of really cool miniatures set in this sort of like science, fantasy, crazy, um, over-the-top game universe. Um, But the game itself is constructed around um, miniatures 
combat, but on a board with elements of deck construction and area control. Um, and what I like about it tactically is that it doesn't require that you look many turns ahead. I'm terrible at those. Right, I'm the world's worst chess player because of that. Um, mm -hmm. and because it's powered from these hands of cards, it lets you uh, kind of focus on what you can do now in this turn and maybe the next turn, but you don't have to sweat what comes after that too much. I mean, I, better players could, I'm sure. But one of, mm -hmm. the second thing I really enjoyed about it is that my wife's never really a board game player, but during quarantine, um, it arrived right before quarantine hit. Uh, so I had something to paint while I, while I was sitting in the house. Um, but she was curious about it, so we played it, and now she is hooked on board games, and it's become part of our routine, um, and she keeps wanting to go back and play that particular game. Um, cool. And seems yeah. to really enjoy yeah. it. So um, I really enjoyed it. I just want to spread the word because it would be great if other people found it and got into playing mm -hmm. it too. Nice. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I really like that. Um, I, it's definitely a game I'm interested in, but... Um, yeah, it's where I'm still thinking, of course, our, our abandoned Gloomhaven campaign because <laughs> of reasons. Hmm. Uh, right. So someday, well, someday. One of the yeah. neat advantages of this is it comes with, you can buy it, in, it buy it at different levels, but it mm -hmm. comes with, um, if you go all in, it comes with six or seven different factions. So you oh, don't cool. have, it's not that like you have to buy your own army and then he has to mm -hmm. buy his own army and she has to get her own army and you have to get together. It's all it's part all, of the okay. same game. Okay. It plays very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, once you know what you're doing, you can play uh, standard games in an hour. But it also comes with a bunch of campaign books so mm -hmm. you, that set different factions against each other. So mm -hmm. there's just lots of different ways to play it. Um, and it's really, oh, cool. It's really enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, Bill, you had another shout out. Yeah. So uh, I am sure that many listeners of the podcast. Um, are familiar with the YouTube stylings of one Harrison Bomber guy. Um, but I wanted to make sure if you're, you know, not subscribed or whatever, uh, you, you go out there and check out his uh, latest two and a half hour long video talking about why uh, the Rooster Teeth produced quasi anime Ruby is somewhat disappointing. Uh, it definitely Saved me the effort of actually watching Ruby, which is something I had been somewhat curious about, but had a much better time, uh, you know, mainlining that 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 hot hot H bomber guy style. Yeah, um, certainly. Yeah, I've become uh, I, I am beginning to appreciate long form YouTube critiques of uh, uh, culture. Uh, I watched uh, your movie sucks do a two and a half hour critique of well making the case that Kimba the white lion is not the same as the Kalion King, that Disney did not rip off the Japanese anime and manga it makes a very convincing case. So, so, and that's, I was like, Oh my God, I watched two and a half hours. <laughs> so uh, I will, and you're not the first person to recommend that to me. Maddie recommended me the Ruby critique as well. So I, I think I will be watching it. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, if we're talking about, no worries. Sorry, I interrupt, but if I was talking about long form, uh, YouTube essays. I would be really remiss to, to not take another opportunity to mention Lindsay Ellis's nearly hour at takedown of the Phantom of the Opera movie. <laughs> so. yep. Oh yeah, that is. Yep. Oh, Chef Kiss. Yeah, yep. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, my final uh, uh, shout out though is a video game, a very short video game, but very interesting called Paratopic. It is a surreal horror game stylized as a PlayStation one era video game. So 3d, but very rough pixelation. Um, And it, features a David Lynchian kind of narrative where you're shifting back between various vignettes, various scenes, and they're they're interconnected, but in very odd ways. And like you're in a diner, someone's telling you you have a job and then you cut to your driving and there's a suitcase. But when you look away, it's not a suitcase, it's a gun. Um, And yeah, so it's like playing these different kind of mini game where these, these little short levels and scenes and then cutting to someplace else. And are you even the same person? Like who knows, but like uh, you're smuggling VHS tapes that have weird supernatural effects or are you? Uh, Yeah, it's uh, it's very much my aesthetic. So, (laughs) and again, it's very, it's a very short game. So um, you can get it done pretty quickly, especially even if you're going to hundred percent it. So, uh, if you like that kind of weird horror, it's definitely something to check out. Um, Jeff, you had one more uh, shout out. Yeah, um, I hope it doesn't sound like a plug, but I'm really digging Tabletopia these days. Um, mm-hmm. And for those that don't know what it is, uh, it is just an online um, gaming platform, uh, but for what would otherwise be analog board games. Uh, there's over a thousand titles in it. It's it's similar to what was it, Tabletop Simulator. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it has less access for just sort of random construction, uh, mm-hmm. and and it's a little more formalized. Um, it's got a lot of great titles. In fact, a lot of the Kickstarter, big Kickstarters that are coming out now are putting up demos so you can play the games before kickstarting them. Uh, it's free to play. Uh, you can get an account and play most games. Um, and even the games that aren't free often let two or three players play for free. And if you want to do four or five players then you need a premium account, but then that's not that expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's $9.99 a month. And as a premium member, you can invite non-premium members to play in your premium game. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just a great way, especially these days when you can't get together with your friends to play a game, but you get to play. In fact, um, last weekend I played uh, Scythe with uh, five other people, mm-hmm. uh, four other people. And uh, it, it does have kludgy elements. I mean, sometimes moving tokens, um, uh, or or being a 3D component lost in the color background on the board um, can be a, a problem, but it's mitigated by the fact that you don't have to set anything up. You just push a button and the game is all set up and you don't have to clean anything or put anything away and just close the window and the game is, is put away. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really would recommend it if you're jonesing to play uh, traditional board games, a lot of new titles, um, but can't do it because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've heard good things about Tabletopia. I need to check it out sooner or later. I've just been, uh, yeah, uh, okay, yeah, because I hear um, if you one person pays for like a board game, then other people can play. If the if only the host of the game has to play, uh, pay uh, is my understanding of it. So like you can't play for free. Yeah, yeah, you can okay. play for free, and you can play many games for free without mm-hmm. anybody with a premium account. Um, and it's not per game; it's just per month. So it's nine ninety five a month, and you can play as many these games as you want oh okay nice yeah it's, it's it's relatively cheap i mean if you look at that hour per fun if you're really into it it's mm-hmm. um, it's pretty good or price per price per hour i guess nice um cool well um that's all we have for this episode uh thank you all for listening i hope you all uh check out blades in the dark if you haven't already uh if that sounds like your cup of tea uh, or cup of ectoplasm see what i did there i 
incorporated <laughs> game setting stuff. Uh, that that's a thing in the game. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll have some this fall, uh, some games of it. And uh, yeah, be sure to keep uh, keep your eye on Night Clerk Radio. We have some cool stuff for it. And uh, oh yeah, also I'm at Ross Payton on Twitter. If you want to go ask me questions about that uh, or RPPR, of course I'm on the RPPR Patreon Discord all the time. Uh, Patreon.com/RPPR. Sign up for only two dollars a month or more to get access to bonus podcasts, uh, exclusive artwork, uh, and access to our Discord. Where again I'm streaming weird videos every week. We're hanging out. It's a good time. Um, and uh, Jeff, how can people find you uh, on the internets? Uh, Biohazard Jeff on Twitter. Uh, I am also frequently on RPPR Discord, just kind of hanging out, mm-hmm. uh, or at least listening in. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also, you can find our games at www.biohazardgames.us. All right. Uh, very cool. And um, Aaron, how can people uh, message you on the internet? Uh, you can always find me at, at Aaron Karsten on uh, Twitter and uh, also at the Raillery Podcast Streaming uh, twi- uh, it's like Twitch page uh, if you want to, uh, where we're doing weekly streamings on Wednesday. Uh, we've been doing Hunt for the last couple of weeks, but uh, we'll probably keep that as a co-op chaos night. Hopefully we'll be doing something within this week, maybe just uh, as an offset for like one shot. So if you have recommendations for games, uh, just send me a message. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bill, you're just out I, there I in the don't. ether. Yeah, <laughs> Bill is a ghost, uh, a ghost, a blade in the dark, as it will. Uh, a Bill in the I, dark. Yeah, I may have a Twitter, but I would guarantee it is sat idle since approximately 2013. Fair yeah. enough. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we'll talk to you all later. Uh, bye. bye. bye.